Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. Welcome to our study of Parshat Chukat. Parshat Chukat introduces the second half of Sefer Bimidbar, and in it we will leave behind the generation that left the land of Egypt to embrace the generation now poised to enter the land. The contents of the parsha are varied. It begins with the cryptic rites of the Para Duma, which we will discuss today, followed by the death of Miriam and Moshe's striking of the rock at Memeriva. Messengers sent to the king of Edom requesting passage through his land are rebuffed, and the people will journey to Hor Hahar, where Aharon will die. They will circle around the land of Edom and then confront the mighty Amorite kings, Sichon and Og, who will be defeated. By the end of the Parsha, the people of Israel are encamped at Arvot Moav, the plains of Moav, on the banks of the river Jordan, just across from the city of Yericho. Following the Ramban's lead, that the narratives of the Torah are in chronological order unless indicated otherwise. We can assume that Parshat Chukat begins after the conclusion of Parshat Korach. Remember that Korach's rebellion failed and in its aftermath the Kohanim and the Leviim were granted extensive privileges Tirumot, priests do for the Kohanim, Maaser or first tithe for the Levites, as well as various gifts from the sacrifices. In fact, the Ramban understands that the matter of the Paraduma, the red hafer that opens our parsha, is bound up with these concluding matters of Parshat Korach. As Ramban puts it, HaParsha HaZot Tashlim B'Torat HaKohanim Our section continues the sacrificial matters of Sefer Vayikra V'nichtiva kan achar matnot kihuna lomar shigam taharatan shal Yisrael al yedei kohen tihiyeh It is mentioned here after the matter of the gifts given to the Kohanim in order to indicate that the purification of Israel is also by the hand of a Kohen. At the same time, of course, the section of the Paraduma is transitional. Effectively, it is the link between the story of Dor Hamidbar, the generation of the wilderness, and the preparations of the Dor Hanichnas, the generation that will enter the land as they make their way. The first part of the parsha, that dealing with the, the para duma or the red hefer, consists of 22 verses that can be roughly divided into two sections. The first section concerns the preparation of the ashes of the red hefer. The second section concerns the actual rituals of purification. 
In very broad strokes, the first section concerning the preparation of ashes constitutes the first ten verses of the Parsha. In it we read about the selection of the red hayfair, its slaughter and the sprinkling of its blood, the burning of its body with additional ingredients, the gathering of its ashes, and the need for purification on the part of those that prepare the mixture. The second half, verses 11 through 22, relate the matter of corpse tum'ah, defilement as a function of contact with a dead human being, whether direct contact or through overhang or ohel, literally a tent. This is followed by the description of the sprinkling which must take place on the third and seventh day, as the ashes are mixed with mayim chayim, or water from a flowing spring. The Torah then speaks about a warning concerning entry into the Mishkan for those that have not undergone the rites of purification. The section ends most curiously with a statement that the water of purification prepared from the ashes of the red hayfair purifies those that are tameh, those that are defiled, even as it defiles those that are tahor. God spoke to Moshe Naharon saying, Zot chukat ha-Torah, asher tziva Adunai leimor, daber el b'nei Yisrael v'yikru eilecha fara aduma temima, asher ein b'amum, asher lo ala aleha ol. This is the statute of the Torah that God has commanded. Speak to the people of Israel that they might bring you a red cow without blemish. and on which no yoke has been laid. The word chukah, or chok, comes from a root which means engraved, and hence a chok is understood as something which is immutable. In early rabbinic literature, chok is contrasted with mishpat. Mishpat is a principle which is rational and appeals to the intellect. Achok, on the other hand, may not have a rational basis. Rashi understands that chukat Torah of our parsha is in many ways the paradigm of a mitzvah of the Torah which has no obvious rational basis. As Rashi explains, Lefisha hasatan ve'umot ha'olam monin et Yisrael omar, ma ha'mitzvah hazot? Uma ta'am yesh ba? The Satan, the accuser, the nations of the world, oppress the people of Israel, saying to them, what is the meaning of this mitzvah? What could it possibly signify? 
Therefore the Torah refers to it as a chukah. Gezerahi mi lefanai. Ein lacharishut laharher achareha. It is a decree before me, says God. And you have no permission to question it. For Rashi, therefore, the paraduma represents the quintessential idea of chok, mitzvot of the Torah that have no obvious rationale. The Torah conditions our performance of the mitzvah on commitment and acceptance, not necessarily on our ability to comprehend. This becomes an important idea in general when we consider the matter of obligation to mitzvot. As Rambam explains in many places, God has given us a brain and an intellect to attempt to understand to the best of our ability the meaning of the mitzvot. But at the end of the day, our commitment to their performance is not a function of our understanding, but rather a function of our acceptance. The text continues, Unitatem otah el elazar hakohen, vohotzi otah el michutz la machane, vishachat otah lefanav. Give the red heifer to Elazar the priest. He will take it outside of the camp and it will be slaughtered before him. For the Ramban, the matter of taking the red hayfair outside of the camp and preparing it there is actually the basis of the chok or lack of rationale associated with this particular mitzvah. As the Ramban puts it, Mipnei heyota naaset bachutz yeira elahem shehinizbechet laseirim al pnei By virtue of the fact that the red hayfair is prepared outside of the confines of the Mishkan, it may appear to the uninitiated that it is in fact being sacrificed to the satyrs and the demons who are in the field. For Amban, the red hayfair is the quintessential chok, defying understanding, because it differs from other sacrifices. While many of the features of the preparation of the red hayfair are sacrificial, such as its slaughter and the sprinkling of its blood, the burning of its body, Nevertheless, a sacrifice is offered only in the confines of Ohel Moed, at the altar that's in the Mishkan enclosure. The fact that the paraduma is prepared outside of the camp, therefore, says the Ramban, is the source of the chok nature of the mitzvah. It defies understanding for that reason. The Torah continues. 
ולקח אלעזר הכהן מדמה באצבעו והיזה אל נוכח פני אוהל מועד מדמה שבע פעמים. Elazar the priest will take from its blood with his finger and sprinkle it in the direction of the opening of the tent of meeting seven times. V'saraf et ha'para le'enav, et ora ve'et b'sara ve'et dama al pirsha yisrof. The heifer will be burned before him. Its skin, its flesh, its blood, even its dung will be burned. ולקח הכהן עץ ארז ואיזוב ושנית הולעת, והשליך אל תוך שריפת הפרה. The Kohen will take wood from the cedar tree, as well as, as, well as hyssop and scarlet, and he will throw those into the burning of the para of the hefer. We will return to these ingredients later. וכיבס בגדיו הכהן ורחץ בשרו במים, ואחר יבוא על המחנה, וטמא הכהן עד הערב. The Kohen will wash his clothing, understood to be the need to undergo tevila. He will wash his flesh and water, and then he will enter the camp. And the Kohen will remain tamei or defiled until the evening. והשורף אותה יכבס בגדיו במים, ורחץ בשרו במים, וטמא עד הערב. The one who burns it will wash his clothing in water, and wash his flesh in water, and he will be tamay, he will be defiled, until the evening. The Sephorno, based on the Gemara in Tractate Yuma, in two places, understands that this feature of the paraduma, namely, that those involved with preparing its ashes become defiled, even as those ashes themselves will be used in the rites of purification, are at the source of the chok associated with the red hayfair. In this respect, the red hayfair defies understanding. How can it be that the very ingredients that will ultimately purify those that are defiled, in the process of their preparation, defile those who are pure? Quoting a verse in Kohelet in Ecclesiastes, the Gemara in Masechet Yuma, page 14a, exclaims, This is what Shlomo meant when he said, Amarti echkima, vehi rechoka mimeni. I thought, I said, that I would acquire wisdom, wisdom concerning the nature of the paraduma, but it is beyond me. פרה אדומה מטמאה את הטהורים ומטהרת את הטמאים. The פרה אדומה defiles those that are pure, even as it purifies those that are defiled. We thus have three approaches as to why the פרה אדומה is regarded as a chok, 
as a statute beyond rational explanation. For Rashi, the paraduma is not anything unusual. There are many things in the Torah which cannot be explained rationally, and paraduma is one of them. For the Ramban, the paraduma is a chok because while it resembles a sacrifice, it is prepared exclusively outside of the camp, outside of the confines of the Mishkan or the tabernacle. And this, of course, makes it unusual and inexplicable. For the Sforno, the paraduma is a chok, is a statute that defies reason because even as the ashes will be used to purify, the process of their preparation defiles the Kohanim, the priests who are involved. The Torah continues with Pasuk Tet, the Asaf Ish Tahor et Efer Hapara, Vihiniach Michutz la Machane, Bemakom Tahor. A person who is tahor or pure will gather the ashes of the hefer and he will deposit them outside of the camp in a place which is pure and they will be for waters of Nida Chatati. It is a sin offering. Me Nida, waters of Nida, are understood by Rashi to mean Me Hazaya, waters of sprinkling. Rashi understands that the root of the word Nida in this context is Yud. Dalad hay, which means to throw, presumably because throwing is done with one's hand. And therefore, menida means waters of sprinkling. Chatati, perhaps to absolve from sin. Or as Rashi explains, lashon chitui, waters of purification. As in modern Hebrew, chitui means disinfection. And therefore, menida chatati can be explained as waters of sprinkling for the sake of purification. He that gathers the ashes of the hayfair will wash his clothing and be defiled until evening. And this will be for the people of Israel and for the convert that is in their midst, an eternal statute. And with this, the first section of Paraduma ends. As I said earlier, this first section describes the preparation of the ashes 
that will now serve for the rite of purification, which follows. Pasuk Yud Aleph, verse number 11. Hanogea bemet, lechonefesh adam, v'tameh shivat yamim. He who comes in contact with a corpse, a human corpse, will be defiled for seven days. Hu yitchatavo, Vayom hashilishi uvayom hashivii yitar v'imlo yitchata vayom hashilishi uvayom hashivii lo yitar. He will purify himself with these ashes on the third day and the seventh day. Then he will be pure. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be pure. The word yitchata is a reflexive verb to purify oneself. Ibn Ezra explains in the simplest possible fashion, yasur cheto, he will cause his sin to be removed. By removing corpse defilement, and becoming Tahor, the man will now be fit to enter into the Mishkan. In effect then, the purification rites remove the burden of defilement, of sin as it were, from him. Kol bemet ha'adam Et Mishkan Adunai Time, Venichreta Hanefeshahim Israel, Kimenida lo Zorak Alav, Tamehihie, Od Tumatovo. Anyone who comes in contact with a dead human being and does not purify himself defiles the Mishkan of God. That person will be cut off from the people of Israel because the waters of sprinkling were not sprinkled upon him and he remained Tameh. His defilement still clings to him. Zota Torah Adam ki amut be'ohel kol haba el ha'ohel v'chol asher ba'ohel this is the Torah, the teaching concerning a person that dies in a tent. Whoever enters the tent, all things that are in the tent will be defiled for seven days. The particular category of tent defilement is particular to the dead human being. Other forms of Tumah, a dead animal carcass or a dead reptile, can communicate Tumah through touch or through carrying, depending on the circumstances. But Tumat Ohel, defilement associated with being in the same space or overhanging the source of Tumah, is particular to Adam, to the human corpse.
וכל קליפטוח אשר אין צמיד פתיל עליו, טמא הוא. Any open vessel that is not covered with a צמיד פתיל is considered defiled. The commentaries explain, based on a parallel passage in Vayikra chapter 11, verse 33, that the reference here is to earthenware vessels, klecheres. Earthenware vessels have a particular quality. When Tuma touches them from the outside, they remain pure, unlike other vessels. On the other hand, when Tuma is suspended in their airspace, even when direct contact does not occur, they become Tameh. In this particular respect, earthenware vessels are exceptional. They do not contract Tum'ah from their outside, even when it is direct contact. They do become Tameh from their inside airspace, even when there is no direct contact. The Torah therefore indicates if the earthenware vessel is open and placed in the tent that has the human corpse, then it becomes defiled. If it is, however, covered with a tight-fitting top, then it remains pure. In the text of the Torah, a tight-fitting top is called tzamid patil. The combination of these two words requires further elaboration. Tzamid comes from the root tzamad, which means joined or close. Petil may come from the word patal, which means that which goes around. Rav Sadya Gaon understands Samid patil means chibur saviv, some kind of a top that covers the vessel all the way around, such that it is sealed. Rashi, while not disputing Sadya Gaon's statement in terms of its practical application, understands that the word patal comes from the idea of chibur or joining, and therefore tzamid patil is an emphatic repetition. The seal is such that it is completely joined. The tight-fitting lid therefore closes the vessel entirely holding Tum'ah of the tent at bay. I should, of course, stress that the laws discussed, discussed in this section concerning defilement and tent Tum'ah are only practical in the context of a Mishkan or a Mikdash or a temple. In the absence of a temple, 
There is no practical application to these laws except for those that ascend the Temple Mount. But otherwise, in day-to-day -day life, they are not currently relevant. Continuing with verse 16, Whoever comes in contact in the open field with a human being that has been killed or that has died, with a human bone or with a human grave, will be defiled for seven days. For he who is defiled, they will take from the ashes of the burning of the hayfair. And they will add the ashes to living waters in a vessel. Mayim Chayim means water which has been drawn from a living spring. A flowing spring. The Torah continues with Pasuk Yutchet, The Kohen will then take a hyssop. He will immerse it in the waters and sprinkle it upon the tent and on all of the vessels and those that had been inside its space, upon him who had touched the bone or the human being that had been killed or the one that had died or the grave. He who is pure will sprinkle on the impure on the third and on the seventh day. He will purify him on the seventh day. And he will then wash his clothing and wash himself and will be pure in the evening. However, the one who had been defiled and did not purify himself, he will be cut off from among the community if he enters the Mikdash, because in so entering he defiles it. The waters of Nida, the waters of sprinkling, were not thrown upon him. He remains Tamei or defiled and impure. It will be for you an eternal statute. The rabbis understand that mazeh mehanida does not refer to the one who sprinkles the ashes upon the impure person, but rather the one who touches the ashes. He will be tamay until the evening. 
וכל אשר ייגע בו הטמא יטמא, והנפש הנוגעת תטמא עד הערב. Whatever the defiled person touches will in turn become tamay or defiled. And the one that touches him will be, will be tamay until the evening. Concerning the hyssop that is used for the sprinkling, as well as concerning the cedar wood and the crimson that are thrown with the body of the hayfair into the fire to form the ashes of purification, at least two other purification rites in the Torah come to mind. One concerns the purification rites of the tsarua, he who is stricken with some sort of a skin ailment, erroneously translated as leprosy, and the house that is stricken with a similar kind of condition. Both of these are discussed in Sefer Vayikra, chapter 14. And in the purification rites associated with it, Tsarua and Tsara Tabait, the Torah mandates the taking of two living kosher birds, cedarwood, crimson, and hyssop, living waters, which is to say waters from a living spring, and an earthenware vessel in which the waters are collected. In those other purification rites, one of the birds is slaughtered and its blood is mingled with the water in the earthenware vessel. The living bird, along with the cedar wood, the crimson and the hyssop are then dipped into the mixture and the tsarua or the house is sprinkled. Afterwards, the living bird is let free and purification is achieved. There is, of course, a powerful parallel to be drawn with our particular passage. In the Midrash, the cedar wood is associated with gasut vige'aba, arrogance and pride. The cedar is a massive tree. In ancient times, it was sought after by kingdoms all over the ancient Near East. There was only one source for cedar wood, and that was the mountains of the Lebanon, of Lebanon. The cedar grew on the slopes of its snow-capped peaks. And for that reason, the Lebanon was known as the Lebanon, which literally means white. So the white-topped mountains, on the slopes of those mountains, the cedars grew. And the cedars, of course, were a very, very strong and useful timber for building, for ships, 
In the Midrash, therefore, the cedar symbolizes that which is tall and that which is proud. On the other hand, the Ezov, the hyssop, grows out of a wall, out of a crag, out of a crack. And in the Midrash, the hyssop symbolizes that which is low down or humble. As Rashi puts it in a Midrashic reading of the Paraduma, the purpose of the purification rites is to indicate that he that is arrogant and has sinned in his arrogance should acquire humility. And therefore the cedar and the hyssop are mixed together with the burning red hayfair to form the ashes of purification. Ibn Ezra offers a penetrating insight in his comments to Vayikra 14 verse 4. He says the following, It seems that the purification rites of the Mitzorah and the stricken house and he that is defiled by the corpse are quite similar. All of them in turn resemble Pesach Mitzrayim, the rites of the Paschal sacrifice in the land of Egypt. Remember that in those rites recorded in Sefer Shemot chapter 12, the blood of the Paschal lamb was to be sprinkled or placed rather on the doorposts and the lintel with an azov, with a hyssop. In essence, the Ibn Ezra invites us to consider the link between all of these things, the exile of the tsarua, the corpse death, and the exodus from Egypt are all interconnected. It seems that all of them are in need of purification rites from a state of death, whether that state is literal or figurative. The Mitzorah is banished from the camp because he experiences a form of spiritual death as a function of his sin. The slave in Egypt, of course, experiences a different kind of death, a death of peoplehood. These two therefore share common features with purification from death, the rites of the red heifer as spelled out in our Parsha. In conclusion, and returning to the opening of our section, we may reframe the location of the red heifer in the narratives of the Torah in the following way. On the one hand is the rebellion of Korach, and on the other hand, the march of the people towards the land. Appropriately, it is the rites of the red heifer that separate the two. The death of the generation that left the land of Egypt and the vitality of the generation 
that is poised to enter the land. Those who had left Egypt had been condemned to their sad fate and had passed on. Their children now stood ready to cast off the pall of death and to solemnly embrace life in the new land. And therefore the rite of the red hayfair, necessary to effect the change of state from corpse defilement to the life-giving presence of God, functions here as the textual link between the generations.